the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. Serving the business of defence. With Grant McHeron. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. This episode, I'll be chatting with Amanda Holt, CEO of SIPAC, and we'll be talking about autonomous systems. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's great to have you here, and I'm looking forward to uh, discussing the autonomous systems. It's, uh, yeah, automation, brains, machine learning, and defense. It's everything all that we ever wanted to talk, right? Absolutely. We can all get our nerd on. Hey, well... Starting with getting the nerd on, we'll come. We'll get. We'll dive into the nerd hole soon. But uh, let's start up the top with. Uh, can you give us an overview of SIPAC and your involvement with the Australian Defence Force and defence industry? Look, the first thing to say about SIPAC is that we are a great example of a genuine Australian industry success story in the defence sector. I know I'm biased, but I do truly believe that. Since the uh, Defence Industry Policy Statement was released back in 2016, SIPAC has taken up the challenge of developing a truly sovereign industrial capability to deliver globally competitive solutions to the complex dynamic threat environment in which we operate. As a veteran-owned business, we've always believed that it's the trusted partnership between defence and industry that allows for the disruptive innovation that will meet the defence industry policy objectives of enhancing national security through developing a globally competitive Australian defence industrial base. We've transformed from a trusted professional services provider into a proven end-to-end systems integrator focused on autonomous systems for our defence, national security and critical infrastructure customers. We've seen our traditional services broaden significantly through the creation of new practices, including cybersecurity, artificial intelligence and machine learning, information systems and C4ISREW, which see us collaborating with the service headquarters, CASG and DSTG in particular, to experiment and I guess push the boundaries on the out of the possible, from quite low TRL research projects right across the full capability lifecycle. Now, Amanda, just to, just to interrupt just for a second there, you, you mentioned uh, TRL. For those who may not know, can you explain what that is? Sure. So that's technology readiness levels. So you start right down at the beginning, sort of stage one to three is that blue sky research. It mostly sits in our academic institutes and it's where DST collaboration often first kicks in. Uh, it's more the research end of research and development. And then you get up to sort of level four through seven, which is where most of the work we do, which is really that early stage prototype and proof of concept of technology. And then it comes all the way through to uh, TRL level nine, which is when a technology is introduced into service. Okay. Thanks for that clarification. Pleasure. So I think if we look at the journey SIPAC's been on, the most tangible changes you'll notice is really in our industrial footprint. So about five years ago, when we all understood there was a new normal coming between defence and industry, we were working out of regular commercial office spaces in Melbourne and Canberra and providing a lot of, um, I guess, technology-leaning but very much services and consulting-based contracts into the sector. We had this tiny systems integration lab. It was literally a small office with no windows, which we used to uh, do some of our initial prototyping and experimentation for our sensors and surveillance business, which was really um, importing some really quite advanced technologies from overseas OEMs and then integrating and supporting those locally, which is what gave us the confidence to take that step from an engineering consultancy into an engineering technology company. 
So today, if you were to come and visit us after not seeing us in the last five years, you'd walk into our 54,000 square foot secure facility here at Fisherman's Bend in Port, down near Port Melbourne, which is the historic heart of uh, Australian aerospace. So certainly, certainly yeah, as somebody who's a keen aviation geek, as you've introduced yourself to me, <laughs> and I'm, I'm a great big aero nerd myself, although I now employ far brighter people to work in that domain, <laughs> and, and I stick to the spreadsheets and uh, events like this. Um, yep. It's given us that really clear, tangible footprint of who we are and who we're aspiring to become. So we've taken further steps. We now have a presence in Lot 14 at Adelaide, where we do a lot of our cyber AI collaboration. Uh, we have our flight operations centre now over in Perth that oversees both our crewed and our uncrewed or autonomous um, operations. And we acquired Ballinger Systems, who are a remarkable um, defence sort of maintenance and support capability up there in Sydney. And uh, earlier this year, we opened up a second Ballinger presence down in uh, Rockingham to support the work going on at the dockyard. So it's been a big five years at SIPAC. I think that... It certainly has. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we don't like to get bored. Um, it's probably, <laughs> probably the summary. We like to talk that uh, people who choose to make SIPAC home are more inclined to rust out than to burn out. Uh, <laughs> standing still and being bored is, uh, is is not sort of in our in our DNA. So it's been been exciting and I think you know, the, there's really two main factors that have helped drive that. We've had, obviously, being a veteran-owned, privately-owned business, we really do get to, I guess, um, create our own destiny. So the, the patience and that investment mindset and growth mindset we have from the board has really enabled us to grip up the second factor, which is that intent of genuine sovereignty and the importance of local IP-generating um, technology businesses. So the two of those have come together to mean that, you know, we're now delivering about a $20 million portfolio of innovation and R&D contracts for defence and national security right here in um, a pretty exciting facility, the Defence Autonomy Centre of Excellence. Yeah, it certainly sounds like there's a lot going on in five years. Who knew? So much already achieved. And we're just going to roll back a little into 2019. You were working with Defence on a cardboard-based logistics delivery drone. It took a lot of us by like, wow, cardboard-based, that's cool, uh, recyclable and everything and, and disposable. So can you tell us about that system, um, how it's progressed and what lessons you've learned from that project? Absolutely. So that's the Precision Payload Delivery System or PPDS. In uh, retrospect, we should have given it a far more creative name, but it's, it's what we're running with. So bear with me. Uh, you could imagine uh, arriving at Army Innovation Day at the end of 2018 with a couple of cardboard aeroplanes under our arms. My chief engineer, Ross Osborne, and I had quite a few people sniggering at us. Uh, they, they stopped giggling when we were awarded the contract. So that's always a nice feeling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Contracts, uh, winning a contract, there's nothing else that says, ha ha, we win. You know, we rock. Yeah, it might have looked silly, but it was, it was silly with purpose. And yeah. I think that, that's almost the end intent of what we were trying to achieve there. We were trying to do something fundamentally different. And the approach we take with all of our prototype activities within our R&D program here at SIPAC is to make sure we're being disruptive. We don't just want to go and build the Australianised version of something that's been proven. We need to find our own space in the market and really create a new category that we're solving. So PPDS, it's a flat-packed, yes, I mean like IKEA, uh, disposable cardboard drone that delivers up to three kilos of supplies, uh, really targeted getting into that sort of last-mile logistics, so into hard-to-reach areas. Uh, think about it almost a flying shoebox with a wing on top of it. That, that's fundamentally the design. 
And it was really our attempt at pushing the boundaries of both that disposability nature, because most of what we've invested in are fairly expensive, exquisite ISR platforms when we think about autonomy, and the use of autonomous systems is so much broader than that. So we wanted to try and push that boundary of disposability at the same time of pushing the boundary of autonomy. So when we think about reducing the physical load on the operator, making systems smaller, lighter, easier to handle... These days, it's really more about reducing the cognitive load on the operator. The, the space, weight and power was well understood for this technology, but how do we enable the operators to do more? Because that's how we're going to generate uh, meaningful combat mass, because we're a relatively small defence force. So we can't afford to have a single operator, or often two, dedicated to traditional UAS operations. So you'll have somebody piloting the aircraft and often a second person controlling the cameras and capturing the data presented and making decisions with that. So we wanted to take the operator completely out of the loop. And so most of that program, again, people focus on this flying cardboard plane. It was much more about the guidance, navigation and control solution and how we could appropriately sort of plan the mission, sense during flight and respond during flight to emerging environmental conditions to make sure we were precisely landing and completing the mission successfully. I imagine um, there's also the situation of going in the last mile and so on. It's quite often degraded GPS signals, harder. You know, most drones rely on GPS and things like that these days to figure out where they are. So that would be an interesting challenge, I would expect. Yes, spot on. So GPS is absolutely a primary uh, navigation sensor for any autonomous system. And then a lot of the work that we were doing was then looking at those secondary navigation solutions that can complement that. Uh, one of the key areas that the team did an enormous amount of work on was our optical flow sensor and uh, the feedback loops um, into the system itself. So the part that I, I always found the most exciting was this idea that it was a system that could fly in, conduct an orbit over the final uh, landing position, and in doing that, it was validating its altitude, its ground speed, all of those things through the optical flow sensor, but then also looking at all the feedback systems that were taking place on the um, control panels on the aircraft itself to assess what are the wing conditions. So it could optimise its its descent, essentially, to ensure it landed where it intended and not, not have other things interfere with it. So as you can imagine, I have more software engineers working for me than most people imagine when they look at a cardboard aeroplane. <laughs> it's a very smart cardboard box. It certainly with is, wings. Yes. <laughs> I imagine that the uh, lessons learned in that project really followed through into uh, earlier this year when you bid the Corvo X Autonomous Unmanned Aerial System for Land 129 Phase 4B. So can you tell us about Corvo X and its capabilities? Yeah, absolutely. So Corvo X really is the poster child of our Corvo family of autonomous systems. It's the most complex system and certainly the lessons, whether it was in the technology itself that was um, developed under the PPDS program or other systems. But often the, I think the main thing we learned through the PPDS journey was the merit in collaborating meaningfully with end users because it's one thing to sit there and read a requirements spec or an OCD and for a bunch of engineers in our basement to sit there and interpret it as to what we think matters. It's an entirely different priority to sit down and understand from end users right now who are touching and feeling the existing technology, who are seeing what's coming next, to try and make sure we were making informed decisions when there is that trade-off. And as you can imagine, for a small UAS, so we're talking less than two kilo for the platform, and with a pretty, you know, pretty significant um, mission specification that the defence wanted to see achieved. Um, 
there's a lot of trade-offs that you have to take because every gram matters, every watt matters in these types of systems. So understanding the real intent of the end user was critical in helping us make some of those informed decisions as we worked our way through. How did you go about getting that? Because you know, typically you're, you're kept at a distance. You, you, did, were you able to organise with, um, I'm guessing, CASG, the ability to uh, sit down with those users? How, how did you go about doing so that? So I think this is probably one of the uh, success stories that I hope we will see off the back of the Defence Innovation Program that was launched back in 2017. Uh, Army headquarters uh, raised a special notice, which is almost the opposite way to most of the Defence Innovation Hub contracts. So most of us throw good ideas in and they catch the ones they like and partner with you. This was one where they released a really clear needs statement identifying what the WAS, which is the current in-service small UAS capability, was mm -hmm. capable of, areas they'd like to see capability improvement, and then opened it up to all of industry to put our bright ideas through. Fantastic. And that gave us a great starting point to understand whether our types of technology might be feasible to this. And of course, the real benefit, the, the co-funding certainly helps when it comes to innovation programs, but the real benefit was having an army sponsor who went on the journey with us. So we could test some of these trade-offs, show them the progress, show them the risks. So, you know, it's a very eyes wide open collaborative journey that you work your way through to sit there and understand, are we going to make it? And uh, we had to go through three different phases of that to continue demonstrating our way through. And I think where we were fortunate or insightful, depending on which which level of self-attribution you'd like to take. <laughs> we, we pursued a really innovative and challenging uh, flight vehicle architecture. So Corvo X combines that vertical takeoff and landing like a normal multi-rotor with um, that forward flight capability of a normal fixed wing aircraft. And that's something that's been proven in more recent years on much larger aircraft, uh, but it's very challenging at this small scale because it, the wind effects and those sorts of things at a small light aircraft definitely come into play. The reason this was important is Army were wanting to try and remove some of the physical risk to the operator. So that idea of having to stand up and throw something like a javelin, obviously, <laughs> yep. exposes people, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, not a good look. <laughs> you know, then to be able to have something that's small enough and able to be launched vertically means you can launch it out of the hatch of an Army vehicle. You don't need someone to be mm -hmm. climbing out the top, assembling the system, standing up and throwing it. So this type of a, um, a flight concept, uh, again, took an enormous amount of our clever algorithms and software team to actually prove the concept. And I think it was that novel concept that really helped um, you know, engage, the, I guess, the art of the possible with the end users, as well as our engineering team to be able to work our way through it. It's uh, yeah, quite a lot of uh, of engineering packed into a little two kilo uh, surveillance, because it's primarily surveillance and reconnaissance, isn't it? Absolutely. So at its simplest level, the way the concept was described to us at the start is this is binoculars up over the hill, around a corner. You know, it's relatively short range um, combat team support. It was the primary mission that was articulated to us. Fantastic. Now, we've spoken about Corvo X and it, apparently it's produced from almost 100% Australian industry content. Uh, so what are your views on sovereign capability for autonomous vehicles here in Australia? 
Yeah, I think we're um, we're very fortunate in that we have an incredibly established autonomous systems, particularly UAS workforce in Australia, and that's largely off the back of some fantastic research that's worked through the university over many years, and also some international primes who've invested heavily in their own R&D programs. That's really been a generation of a world-class workforce. We do we do get the odd phone call that we first think is spam when you get some of the um, inquiries coming through from these massive multinationals who aren't the defence space saying, oh, we believe SIPAC can help us with this little problem. It's like, no, that's that's got to be a phishing email. Oh, no, it's real. <laughs> yes, that is the CTO of that very large organisation. Sorry sorry for keeping you waiting, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it gets like that. <laughs> and so you can understand why that RAS AI becoming a sovereign industrial capability just makes sense. It's not necessarily an area like some of the previous sick peas that were almost previously made investments and things that were underway and maturing. This is really government identifying, I think, two things. Firstly, that we absolutely have the capability resonant within the Australian industrial um, base to become a global leader in this type of technology, but also that the nature of this type of technology means that you must have that local collaboration taking place. I think the rate of change we see in this technology, the rate of disruption we see in the battle space with this type, the use of this type of technology means that you need to have that local partner you can go down to and work through the solutions because you're not buying the system and it's going to be relevant in 10 years' time. These things are becoming obsolete. You need to stay at the forefront as you work your way through it. It's like watching your iPhone or your Android suddenly go, I'm out of date and I'm only two years old. Absolutely. And it is. It's because the technology innovation cycles are just so short in this space that there's a real risk that if we were to buy something that is world-class but available today and expect to be operating that in eight years' time, the hardware probably won't change very much. But my goodness, you want the sensor systems, you want the digital processing, you want the um, operator interface to continue to evolve. And as you touched on earlier, things like how you're going to navigate in an increasingly contested and congested battle space, you need to be able to iterate that based on your sovereign knowledge of your um, your battle space environments. So in the topic of that uh, sovereign capability here within Australia, as you said earlier, you've uh, really expanded your um, area from one small windowless office. You now have the Defence Autonomy Centre of Excellence, as you mentioned, at Fisherman's Bend. Uh, how is it progressing since it was officially opened in April and, and what developments can you tell us about at uh, your version of a skunk works? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much for understanding. I can't be as open and honest as I'd like to be about some <laughs> of the things we do we do down here. Look, the DACE, as we call it, it's been a great capability. I think for us to demonstrate both to defence customers and decision makers and our supply chain what the art of the possible for Australian R&D and advanced production can look like. Uh, we're very fortunate, Minister Pakula, the Victorian State Minister, uh, opened the days for us earlier this year. And we had Minister Price, the previous Defence Industry Minister, tour the facility as well. And the main theme to both of those was almost a sense of surprise that this is what's possible for a small Australian business. I think we tend to associate this type of capability with needing the deep enough pockets to be, you know, a, a massive multinational. Whereas I think one of the things that I hope is inspiring of uh, the posture we have around sovereignty right now is that when medium-sized Australian businesses are able to identify where they're best placed to compete and collaborate – you should be able to invest in that directly and you should be able to expect that backing from government, not in, a, in an artificial manner, but, it, but in a truly capability-driving sense. 
And one of the things we've we've seen once we've actually moved in here and started using using the facility in anger is that it's the scale and nature in this investment that really needs to be seen to be believed. You know, you can show people photos and you can talk about the size, um, but it's been when we've bought representatives from Army, Navy, Air Force, and actually DST have been particularly excited, maybe because they're around the corner and want to come play with yeah. us in it. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, neighbour. Yeah. Yeah. And they start talking about what the art of the possible is. And I think one of the things that uh, was a huge investment decision at the time, but we decided it was necessary for the business we're planning to become, it's the high security environment that has been most substantial. Um, But that's how we build our own future, right? So it's that software development infrastructure that forms part of our Spark Labs. That's the SIPAC Production and Research Centre, which, to be honest, I didn't think you could possibly spend that much money on ICT, but it turns out you absolutely (laughs) can. Oh, you can. (laughs) And it was. It was that secure physical and then um, cyber infrastructure for the high-performance computing that means it's not just our autonomous system software that you see in our Corvo platforms that we're developing and testing there. It's the guidance, navigation and control algorithms. It's a flight control software. It's the data links. It's the ground control station software. But more so, it's actually the modelling and simulation environment that helps us optimise the design of the platform, helps us do a lot of that um, reliability testing and vulnerability testing of our systems And then by extension, some of the artificial intelligence and machine learning work we're starting to do in completely different areas with defence, where we're doing some complex mission experimentation or just enhancing digital imaging processing, those types of processes that we can do because we can do it in a secure, high-performance environment. And rather than having to wait for the opportunity for a defence contract to come along and hand that to us, which, as we know, can can be very challenging for everyone, Mm -hmm. I think build it and they will come approach that we've been able to take has been significant in creating those other opportunities for us. And the bit I enjoy the most, and again, it's because I don't get to play as an engineer anymore, but I like to pretend I'm still one. You'll go down and you'll see see the electronics and software guys sitting down there in the Spark Labs, coding away, doing some upgrades, loading it onto the boards. They walk out through the moat into our integration workshop, load it up onto a platform, and then they walk across the indoor flight test area, start flying, start capturing that information on board immediately. An hour later, they're back in the lab again, analysing what worked, what didn't work, and how to make that next iteration Uh, being able to do that end-to-end all under the one house, absolutely remarkable in terms of efficiency. But it also means that the people who are involved in the flight testing have a better appreciation for what the software engineers are doing. And the software engineers have a better appreciation for what's going on out in the field. Whereas if everyone's sort of geographically dislocated, it's much harder to get that collaborative sense of what the art of the possible is. And it then means we make better problem-solving decisions. Yeah, and and when you've got software people who understand the reality of operations and operations who understand the reality of coding, as you said, that uh, they'll make much better decisions. They'll, uh, you know, they'll, they'll get it Absolutely. a whole lot better. They'll they'll design for an understanding, which is exactly, great. Exactly, and that's when the magic happens. <laughs> it definitely does. And speaking of magic. Artificial intelligence drives autonomous systems, gives us that magic and so on. And that leads to the discussion for me, especially of the human in the loop as opposed to the human on the loop or entirely out of the loop, uh, which is one thing that people are considering as well. So what are your views on 
this transition of being in to on and potentially even out of the loop and the increasing involvement of AI and military systems. Yeah, it's interesting because it really is a big shift in mindset. And in my mind, this is all, it's not a matter of if we're going to do it. When you look at any capability, it's really a matter of when and how. When we think about autonomous systems and AI specifically, we're starting to talk about this idea of evergreening with most defence capability. And that's, you know, usually how do we upgrade some software or some sensors and keep inserting new technology into a relatively stable base. But when we start talking about algorithms and autonomous systems, the rate of change of technology, the rate of change and insertion of disruption is, is essentially unpredictable other than it's going to happen soon and it'll be sooner than you want it to happen. So... We have to be aware that this can make our existing technology irrelevant overnight. So it's really not the sort of capabilities we can be looking at on when it becomes obsolete, we'll then go and come up with our next option. It's you know, it's not like a truck where you start saying, you know what, this, this is getting a bit hard to maintain. Let's start thinking about buying the new one like you would with your family car. This is something where you have to you have to be disrupting yourself. You have to assume that our adversaries are you know, engaging with emerging technologies, both in the physical and the cyber domains, that we're not necessarily across yet, or they're applying it in ways that we haven't foreseen because of our view of rules of engagement. So we have to be planning in this future long-term view of autonomy and AI as a capability in and of itself. And there's probably two parts to that. So one is that we have to just plan to disrupt our own innovations whilst they're still in the early stage R&D, not just once they get into service. So we do a lot of work on testing both the counter technology to what we're working on and then considering the counter counter technology as to whether that's something we need to insert or, or how you plan that into your you know, technology roadmap. If we don't do that, we're just planning in obsolescence and irrelevance into what we're doing. I think when we start looking at why autonomy and AI really matters, and I touched on this earlier, it's the fact that for such a relatively small defence force, we need a means of generating combat mass. We need a way of identifying operational agility that we can apply that sort of trusted sense of autonomy and AI decision support in a way that we trust appropriately. And one of the challenges I think we have with that is trust means a different thing to different people. And when you look at how complex our operating domains are becoming, when you look at how complex the technology we're um, developing is, it's very challenging for people to understand how they fit all of those all those pieces together. And unfortunately, we tend to take that idea of the role of the human in the loop on the human understanding exactly when they should or shouldn't interact. So, Instead, I think it's important that we're able as technology developers to work with defence so that we can articulate how our technology is being designed to perform, the role we actually need the human to play in that loop, and then how we can best deploy that most limited resource, the trained human in the ADF, to generate that decision superiority and generate that combat mass, knowing which tools they have available to create options. No, that's that's very, very well put there, especially with... Uh enhancing the limited forces that we have so that we can continue hitting above above our weight, I believe the phrase Absolutely. is. Absolutely. <laughs> so we've just been talking about AI and, and one of the things uh, I've noticed with the AI world is that it can often reach decisions or recommendations that surprise the people who are working with it. Uh, we've seen this, uh, for instance, in the, the food industry where uh, adding a little bit of pineapple taste to the milk gives you a more realistic milk flavour. You know, things like that, uh, various other decision supports where people look at it and go, how did it come up with that decision? So 
the, the indications are that if you can show that your AI, how it linked everything together and had that spark of brilliance to make that decision that somebody wouldn't think of, uh, are you experiencing that with your AI or is it sometimes doing things you wonder what made it do that? <laughs> Look, that's a massive question. It's too big to deal with in the context of a podcast. And I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not the expert from a technical perspective, but I certainly work with a lot of very bright people who are. I think one of the challenges with AI is it's sort of a bit like the new cyber. It sort of means everything to everyone and almost nothing to anyone as a result. Um, and that, that can be a real challenge when we start talking about AI. So that traceability of decisions um, aspect in your question, I think that's really important for decision analytic systems. Um, but for others where, for instance, the system's continually adapting based on its learning, based on different inputs and the way it's deducing from that, these become seriously wicked problems to try and address and try to explain. So you get to the trend of explainable AI, and I think that's key when you're looking at um, data fusion and other sort of rules-based standardised data input-based um, um, problems that you're solving because you can not necessarily articulate the outcome of each individual decision, but you can talk about the decision-making process that's been applied. And that gives people an inherent sense of comfort that they understand the way this, this system is approaching the solution. I think um, where we're headed with the sort of work we do, it's a bit less about that sort of linear validation of the approach that's being taken. Uh, largely because the interaction of multiple autonomous systems and the complexity of algorithms that are being engaged in a multi-temporal environment makes it far more complex for somebody to begin to understand. So trying to draw a linear path through that isn't really suitable to the type of work that we've been doing. So the way we go on that journey, it's less about trying to give people confidence in how they arrived at the decision, although obviously we do a lot of work in that space, and it's more about how do you make sure the system doesn't give you a clearly wrong answer? How do you make sure if you tell your system, do not do this, so at the simplest level, geofencing, how do I make sure my aircraft will never fly where I tell it it won't fly? That's more important than proving how it will fly where I tell it to fly, if that makes sense. And it's it's where you start simplifying the decision down to something that's tangible and meaningful and flows into simple things like safety cases, which are obviously <laughs> very important <laughs> yeah. to all of yes, us. Yes, very. We had, a, we had a really good conversation with a Navy customer the other day where we were identifying the relative merits and constraints of a particular algorithm we've been experimenting with. And people's first instinct is to assess it based on how well did it do, did it solve the problem the way I would have. And of course, if I put five PWOs in a room and ask them to save, solve the same problem, they're all going to come to a slightly different outcome and they're all going to take a slightly different process to get there. They'll end up at the right, what they'd all consider a right answer and there'll be good overlap in there. But there's no way you can validate that precision. So that's where we focus on trusted being you don't do what I tell you not to do. Um, you know, it's a bit like if I tell my children you're not allowed to go and take a packet of chips out of the pantry. It's very clear. Are the chips there the next day or aren't they? You know, it's pretty binary if you did the wrong thing. Uh, that, that's the approach that we need to take to most of our, our development. And I guess that, you know, to sort of always wrap up our conversation, that gets us back to the very, very expensive simulation environment I have down in my basement because that's yep. how we fully exercise everything safely in that synthetic environment to provide that assurance that, Yes, in general, it's completing the processing in the way we would expect it to, and it's absolutely not doing any of the things we've told it it can't do. 
Fantastic. Well, Amanda, this has been a wonderful chat. And as you said, let's call it in there. I think that's brought us right the way back through. Uh, and that simulation environment that you've got that you can actually test everything out without leaving the building. Fantastic. So we'll wrap it here. I think we've gone reasonably gently into the nerd topics without going too deep. Uh, I don't think anyone will have gone to sleep. So that's been really good. It's been a wonderful chat and I've really appreciated uh, you coming on the podcast to uh, talk to us about SIPAC and uh, the work that you're doing with autonomous systems. Oh, thank you so much. As you can tell, I would talk about this stuff all day until I hit the uh, the limits of my knowledge and then I have to invite some of my super nerds in to <laughs> firstly tell me what I got wrong and uh, <laughs> fill out the rest of the conversation. But look, this is, this is an incredibly exciting time to be an Australian business working in the defence sector. The RAS AI, AI SICP is really creating an environment for us to really flex our muscle, I think, on a global scale because we can be world leaders in this technology. And if we can make sure government and defence remain on this journey with all of us so that we can continue investing, I, I believe we'll all be repaid for that tenfold. I agree with you entirely on that. And uh, so far, it's looking great and good progress. So once again, thanks, Amanda, for coming on the show. Thank you so much. And of course, thanks to everyone for listening once again. And don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, you can like us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice, as this helps others discover our show. Meanwhile, thanks for tuning in. And we'll be back in the not too distant future with another informative episode. The ADM podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yaffa media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence, or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au, or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.